Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. In the past, I've mentioned natural law many times. Today, I'd like to talk to you specifically about natural law to better define it and relate it to chiropractic so you can understand how chiropractic philosophy must be anchored to something and natural law is the best something to anchor it to. I get a lot of questions from people wanting to know more about philosophy and how it relates to everyday chiropractic. So let's try to do that today. Let's try to anchor our philosophy and then make it intensely practical. I know that's a bold statement, so hold on tight. last few weeks, I've mentioned natural law and talked with you about worldviews. I decided that I needed to talk a little more in depth about natural law for you to really understand the connection with chiropractic philosophy. What we're going to talk about today is pretty deep, but I've had a lot of people asking me for help because they'd like to study philosophy in greater depth. Let's start by talking about natural law and then we'll anchor it to chiropractic later on. To do this, I'm relying heavily on the author Jay Budzhashevsky, particularly his book The Line Through the Heart, which is a book about natural law. In case you're curious, Budzhashevsky is spelled B-U-D-Z-I-S-Z-E-W-S-K-I. As a simple, possible overly simple, definition of natural law, it is the body of unchanging moral principles regarded as a basis for moral conduct. For stability, natural law is dependent on the idea of intelligent design, much like chiropractic. Budzhashevsky further asserts that this code of the natural law is written on the heart so it's not only appropriate for all, but it's known by all. For centuries, natural law served as the starting point for all discussions of reality, whether religious or non-religious. Today, this is no longer the case, which has led to a society where everything is questioned, including the very nature of reality itself. What is real, and what do we truly know, are commonly asked questions in this society, because it's now considered the height of intelligence to question everything, including the things we should not or cannot question. Budzhashevsky explains natural law in this aspect, as fact, as theory, and as contradiction, meaning the truths have been obscured and repudiated for not being more obvious. He then states that natural law exasperates, it offends, and it enrages. This is an important point, because if you feel yourself feeling any of these things during this discussion, at least know that you're not the only one. In fact, we all feel those things, or at least we probably should. He then goes on to say that the acute scandal of natural law is the suicidal proclivity of our time to deny the obvious. Therefore, we must not suppose that the definition of common ground is what everyone concedes or what nobody denies. There is nothing that no one denies. The chronic scandal is a problem for all times, as our human nature demands happiness on terms that make happiness impossible. In this regard, I think Budzhashevsky states the problem well and leaves us with a clear understanding of why we need natural law. I admit my view is probably influenced by my age and the reality that I've seen these problems in their infancy and I've watched them grow to become the all-out chaos and inability to reason that we now see all over the world. If you're younger, you haven't seen the progression, so you might be acutely aware of the contradiction between what you are told is true and the truth that's constantly conveyed to you by your senses and your subsequent sense of reality. I have no doubt this is a major contributor to the high suicide rate among young people as well as the modern invention of mass shootings. How could it not be? Do you realize that the suicide rate for people between the ages of 15 and 24 has increased by 56% since 2007? They say that the greater the distance between who you are and who you think you are, the closer you are to insanity. 
If that's true, then the greater the distance between what you're told is reality and what you perceive to be reality, the closer you must be to something. Whether that something is anxiety, depression, insanity, or suicide, who's to say? But I imagine it must lead you to the conclusion that either life is not worth living, meaning suicide, or the conclusion that nobody's life is worth living, meaning homicide. Both options are obviously bad. I only bring this up because if suicides and mass shootings are on the rise, then we obviously need to address the underlying issue, even if it makes us uncomfortable or even mad, and we've already acknowledged that it will. Natural law is a sort of truth or dare game with reality. If we care to observe, we can see that certain actions have predictable consequences. One simple, and I will admit unkind, example of this has to do with divorce. All of the research shows that couples who live together before they are married are at a higher risk for divorce. Their relative risk is lower in the first year following marriage, presumably because they have an easier transition. But after the first year, the risk is higher for those who live together first. So here's how the truth or dare works. You acknowledge this truth and you make a decision accordingly, or you say, not me, I'm the exception, and you dare to do it anyway. See, truth or dare. Acknowledging the truth doesn't guarantee you won't get divorced, and daring to challenge it does not guarantee that you will. In that sense, the truth is kind, as some parts of natural law are not as forgiving. But even this does not really bring us to the natural law. The natural law is only natural because it's the knowledge written on the heart, even when we do not know it's there. So we ask ourselves, what is the morally correct thing to do? This we should automatically know without any of the information I've previously discussed. And we can then ask ourselves, does the law or morality written on our hearts guide us toward or away from the option with the least amount of consequences? Moral lawyers will tell you that the natural law will always guide you toward the path with the least consequences. The consequence being generally seen as the punishment for making poor or shall we say immoral decisions. Having explained the basic concept of natural law, let's turn our attention immediately toward the most important question addressed by natural law. Natural law views all of nature as an intricate design formed by intelligence, an assertion which demands a creator. While the naturalist views nature as all there is and ascribes to it the same attributes that the natural lawyer would ascribe to the creator. In most situations, the camp that you would identify with would be determined solely on the basis of whether or not you believe in God. But I dare ask you, Shouldn't that be the final conclusion that we draw and not the starting premise? The unspoken conversation, if we were to have it, would go something like this. I don't believe in God, therefore I'm a naturalist. But what if everything spoken of in naturalism is pure nonsense? Well, it doesn't matter because I don't believe in God. The interesting thing about this, for me, was that I discovered very early on when reading the Green Books that chiropractic carries as a basic assumption, an a priori assumption, that the human body follows a design and is both logical and predictable in its design. It then became immediately apparent to me that medicine is the exact opposite and assumes that the human form is merely the fortuitous consequence of millions of years of reproduction and brutality. On the first hand, if the body is designed, then its inner workings and hidden functions can be known, predicted, and most importantly, trusted. If the human body is a cosmic accident built by chaos, then its working is unknown, unpredictable, and it cannot be trusted. This first point is so important that everything else that we can learn and become hinges entirely upon it. Chiropractic philosophy only makes sense in the context of a designer, and medical philosophy only makes sense without one. Is it any surprise that the big universities that teach medicine also teach atheistic evolution? They have to, or else they would undermine their entire medical program and paradigm. 
A fever spikes, and the medical person says, we need to reduce the fever. If the body's designed to create a fever, then we should just let it do it. If the body's a cosmic accident, then we shouldn't put too much faith in its archaic responses, and we should probably bring it back down under our control. To know whether we should look to natural law or naturalism, we simply look at reality. Is the fever good, or is it bad? Does it need to be controlled, or is it well controlled on its own? People worry about a fever getting too high for fear of brain damage. In his great work, Confessions of a Medical Heretic, Dr. Robert Mendelson, head of pediatrics at the famous Cook County Hospital, said that brain damage is caused by the drugs given for a high fever, and without the administration of those drugs, the fever can go as high as 108 and even higher without any detrimental effects. The underlying principle is that the human body is smart enough not to hurt itself, so it will only go as high as it can handle. Every medical person, besides Dr. Mendelson, of course, would disagree with that statement. Not because they have evidence it isn't true, but because they haven't been taught, and possibly even brainwashed, to believe the opposite. Philosophy makes a difference because either you trust the body to know and do what is best, or you don't. Most of our patients do not trust their bodies to know what is best, even when they want to, and they say that they do. They still don't, and their actions prove it. Natural law has a strong, yet often unrecognized role when it comes to chiropractic, because natural law was a presupposition of all chiropractic philosophy, even if D.D. and B.J. Palmer didn't know it at the time. The other reason for natural law is because of its influence on ethics. The ethics of Darwinianism center on little more than whatever it takes to survive, along with the seeking of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Since that's different for everyone, it isn't hard to understand why it has been observed that the more Darwinian ethics spreads through a population, the harder it is to find an agreed-upon ethic. If everyone has their own ethic, then you ultimately have no ethic at all. Isn't this at least part of the problem and the confusion facing our society today? Where can you find an agreed-upon ethic? Natural law does include an ethic, but with some rather strange discoveries. For example, over time, capital punishment was slowly eliminated as it was reasoned that it cheapened the value of life and two wrongs don't make a right. That sounds reasonable, and I think most of us would consider redeeming a person instead of killing them. Strangely, though, there was an unintended consequence of this change in policy, as killing in its other forms increased through abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. Would we not argue that these increases indicate an even greater cheapening without capital punishment than we ever had with it? We didn't have the stomach to kill the guilty, so the killing of the innocent increased. It seems strange, but natural law would have predicted this. Natural law states that the killing of the guilty, who took the life of the innocent, pays a debt and reestablishes the value of human life. In so doing, it reduces the occurrence of abortion, suicide, and euthanasia. And in fact, these things were always kept low in the past. When I was young, suicide, abortion, and euthanasia were rare and appalling when they occurred. Why? Because life has value, and anyone could have told you that back then. My grandmother knew one of the victims of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and everyone who knew her wanted him to die, not for cheap revenge, but to reestablish the value of life. He was sentenced to death in 1989, but of course California is too friendly toward criminals to actually carry out the sentence. Instead, he died in 2013 from natural causes, and every life he took is forever cheapened because he was allowed to live. It doesn't escape my attention that the original Hippocratic school vowed never to commit abortion or euthanasia because the value of human life was their greatest value. Whether or not you accept natural law, if you only accept chiropractic philosophy, you still must value the life force and intelligence inherent to the human body. Whether you take a strong stance or not, 
I would imagine that you are at least slanted against abortion, suicide, and euthanasia, as it must cause some disturbance of your conscience or your soul. If it doesn't, then no doubt there is conflict in the inconsistency between promoting life and death at the same time. For some reason, inconsistencies like this cause us tremendous mental anguish as we are ultimately unable to lie to ourselves and reconcile things that are unreconcilable. Either you will be for life and all the killing will bother you, or you'll be okay with the killing and you'll be unable to properly promote a philosophy of life. As I've stated before, you cannot have a philosophy without also having an ethic. Hopefully you can now see why that's true. Even the chaotic individual ethic that comes from Darwinianism is still an ethic. It doesn't have to be a good one, and in fact, when we find a bad one, it should be an indication that what we have is weak and out of touch with reality. We currently live in a time when human life has very little value. This is how it was in huge sections of history, whether it be the Dark Ages, the Roman Empire, the Nazis, and countless other regimes and time periods. We would like to think that we've advanced beyond that, but it simply isn't true. It cannot be true because we've done more to devalue human life than we have to affirm it. Not only are suicides, abortions, and euthanasia up, while capital punishment is nearly non-existent, but homicides are also up. In fact, all crimes are headed up, including domestic abuse, because the government made a decision to stop punishing crime. All crime devalues human life. Killing is just the most devaluing. They made a decision that the individual was more important than the group. So a person commits a crime, We don't want to devalue that person by punishing them for the crime, so we rehabilitate them and we punish the population instead. Well, they have broad shoulders. They can carry it, right? Maybe a few times, but not on the scale we currently see. This approach to crime has only led to more crime, but what wasn't so obvious in the insidious devaluation of human life. You might think I've gone off of tangent here, but I assure you I haven't. We are in a profession where we speak life constantly and we wonder why nobody is listening. The reason they aren't listening is because life is not valued, and natural law tells us why. Our society is steeped in naturalism. That means Darwinianism, survival of the fittest. I've often pointed out this contradiction, because survival of the fittest is brutal and unkind. Every school in America which teaches evolution as origin has in front of it a school zone. The school zone reduces the speed of traffic to a ridiculously low pace. If asked why, the school authorities would tell you it makes sure that no children are hit and killed by a car. But if evolution is true, shouldn't you raise the speed limit? In survival of the fittest, the most dangerous thing that can happen is for the most inferior among the species to reproduce as it could threaten the existence of the entire species. If a kid is dumb enough to walk out into traffic, don't you want to be sure that they're never allowed to reproduce? I told you, survival of the fittest is hard and cruel. No, of course we don't do that, but it only goes to prove that the people who teach evolution don't actually believe in it. Even more revealing than that is the fact that they care for every one of those children and will even die to protect them, as we've recently seen. Why? Because the value of human life is written on their heart, just as natural law would declare it is. This should give us hope to know that while life has been devalued, the value of life itself is written on each person's heart, and it can be reawakened despite the best efforts of our governments to devalue the life of the individual. Natural law declares that the most basic truths of right and wrong although not necessarily the details, are not only right for everyone, but are known by everyone. Lots of people speed, but they do it knowing that it's wrong, and they aren't surprised when they get caught and punished. In a separate writing called The Revenge of Conscience, Bujashevsky makes the point that we can ignore our conscience to the point of silencing our conscience, but we can never fully erase it, nor can we escape the consequences of it. 
The fact that we cannot escape the consequences, even when we are blind to them, is why it's called natural law and not just a natural perspective. Many people who are cynical and bitter are that way because they feel as though they've, been, they've reaped what they haven't sown, to the negative. But this is really because they have silenced their conscience to the point of becoming ethically and morally blind. Now, let's tie this all back to chiropractic. A very important fact that I learned early on is that people recognize truth when they hear it. I experienced this myself the first time I went to a Gonstead seminar. I didn't know anything about chiropractic and probably even less about natural law, but I knew that when I heard the doctors leading the seminar's talk, I was hearing truth. In contrast to this, I heard many of my instructors speak, and I knew what they were telling me wasn't true. This wasn't based on head knowledge, but it was based on what was written on my heart. The information that you give as your patient education absolutely must be true. If it's not, they'll know, even if you think you're a good liar. In the early days, I built my practice more off of my patient education than I did off of my adjusting ability. I didn't have a lot of adjusting ability, but I knew how to be truthful, so I went with that. I told patients the truth that nobody else could or was willing to tell them. Not only do people know the truth when they hear it, but they're extremely attracted to it when they hear it. By my estimation, there really isn't any reason not to tell the truth, unless the truth is unknown to you. In that case, admit it, because that's the truth. It might sound weird to you, but natural law was the key to patient education for me because I first learned about it around the time I first started in practice. I began looking at every symptom as the inevitable result of a particular problem. The only challenge was learning to correctly assess which symptoms were produced by which problems. For me as a young doctor, this gave me the confidence to pursue understanding and it removed the chaos of believing it was unknowable and unpredictable. Once I had this confidence and assurance from natural law, I then began to share it with my patients. To this day, my patient education centers around them knowing and understanding that everything they are feeling is a known and predictable consequence of the problem they have. This isn't the only formula for patient education, but I personally think it's the best one. In a nutshell, pursue truth. Hopefully this has helped you to have a framework for thinking about these things. I'll remind you again that Bujashevsky says natural law exasperates, enrages, and offends. Hopefully you haven't felt too much of that today. More importantly, I hope you can see how chiropractors are perfectly positioned because of our emphasis on the value of life. This value is written on the heart, so everyone sees it, even if they have tempor temporarily forgotten. In a society that continually demeans the value of the individual, we can promote the value of the individual and the life of the individual. We can promote the value of the intelligence that lives inside us all. The power that made the body heals the body. That's our message, and it's a timely one. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.